Hello and welcome to Playback Daily. It's Wednesday the 7th of February. I'm Louise Herity and here's some of what's coming up. They stop taking the cocaine, uh, you know, night after night or week after the week. They, they can develop horrible withdrawal symptoms, uh, which uh, range from mood swings and irritability and cravings for the drugs to nightmares and feelings of uh, absolute exhaustion, which is famously known as the crash. I lifted up my laundry basket next to my bed and discovered the scorpion looking up at me. And for the first couple of seconds, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. But then I realised I had just come back from Kenya. Me and my mother the only two people in our entire family go to New York and it's very exciting, but it's going to be tiring because I'm going on a seven-hour flight. An eight-year-old Galway boy will be taking part in the fastest kid in the world race in New York on Sunday. Charlie Sweeney from Murview will take part in the 55-metre race at the Milrose Games. Theresa Mannion was in Ryark Namara in Galway City to bring us this report on Morning Ireland. Close to 400 pupils attend the Ryark Nemara Desh School, which has 28 different nationalities and a high proportion of children from the travelling community. Charlie Sweeney is a talented young footballer and a serious boxing contender. Now, it turns out, he is a top-class sprinter as well. I realised I was very fast. Once I got picked, I was like, what, I'm that fast? I didn't know I was that fast. It takes a lot of hard work, including jogging, sprinting, and a bunch. And my timetable is very hard because I'm boxing on Monday and Thursday, and I no Monday and Wednesday, and I football on Tuesday and Friday, and on Thursday is my day off. Tell me about the excitement you feel. This is going to be me and my mother is the only two people in our entire family to go to New York, and it's very exciting. But it's going to be tiring because I'm going on a seven-hour flight. Fastest Feet was set up in Ireland as part of a talent ID programme funded by Galway entrepreneur Richard Donovan. Every year, thousands of eight-year-olds across the country are tested for top-end speed across school corridors and yards. Keith Joyce is principal of Rark Namara. They were looking for an athlete who could take part in this prestigious Millbrook Games. And I think within five minutes they identified Charlie. They wore the GPSs, they'd done lots of testing and so on. And uh, Charlie's speed was off the charts, which is fantastic, you know, to think that here in the middle of Galway City we're sending a child uh, all the way over to New York to take part in and, and compete against children uh, from all over the world. I have three brothers, Eddie, Des Michael, they're all older than me, and Eddie, he does the same sports as me, Des Michael, they, um, they just do boxing, but during the county finals, um, Connacht's finals. So where does all that talent and skill come from? My, my dad. Your dad. Is he very proud of you? Yeah, he's my football coach and my boxing coach. Hello, my name is Desmond Sweeney. I'm the father of Charlie Sweeney. He's the younger... He's the youngest of four sons. We used to train with his older brothers doing sprints and jogging, and he was always last, but we didn't realise that he was this fast because he was racing with his older brothers, and it was a wake-up call when we found out he was as quick as he was, and we are very happy with that. At the moment, he didn't play any contact sport in over three weeks with boxing and soccer, so we haven't just training, but no contact whatsoever in case he picks up an injury. And how is that going down? Oh, he's he's biting his nails. He's no fingers left with the anxiety levels. He's 
he's so much energy in his body that he just wants to let loose, so we're hoping he does it on the 11th and we come back with gold. Hello, my name's Kylie Ray. Charlie's my first cousin, I'm very happy for him. I hope that he wins, but if he doesn't, it's fine. Good luck, Charlie. My name is Candice, and Charlie is my friend, and he's going to New York to race, and we hope he wins. My name is Nikita, I'm in your class. My, I'm nine years old. He's, he's a good friend for everyone, and he's the fastest boy in the whole, whole world. And he's kind, he's good, he's helpful and um, he's a good friend. Charlie Sweeney is off to New York with his mother Louise later today and the little boy with the fastest feet is dreaming big. I hope I win and I'll win a lot to my family because then I'll be, the, I'll be the only world champion in my family. And the very best of luck to Charlie. A shortage of school places in parts of counties Kildare, Wicklow, Dublin, Galway and Cork has left parents unable to secure a secondary school for their child locally in advance of the coming academic year. Brian Dobson had the story on today's News at One. As reported by the Irish Times this week, parents say the situation is at crisis point, with children on waiting lists for local schools now facing the prospect of lengthy commutes to distant schools next September. In a statement to the News at One, the Department of Education has said it's working with schools to make additional places available and says that all children who require a place will be provided with one. Caroline Ryan Carpenter's 13-year-old daughter Quiva is one of those who's been affected by the ongoing shortage of second-level school places in County Kildare. Caroline has been telling our reporter Sally Ann Barrett that the family felt they were left with no choice but to send their daughter to a boarding school in County Tipperary when they were unable to secure a place in her local secondary school in Prosperous last September. So we applied for a place for Quiva for September 2023 back in October 2022. We were placed on a waiting list to begin with. We just assumed because it was her feeder school, which is directly across from her primary school, that she would receive a place automatically, but such didn't happen. And then about May, the principal rang us and said it was highly unlikely that Quiva would get a place in, in the local secondary school. We were absolutely shocked. We also applied to a school in Plain and in Selbridge, and she was placed on waiting lists in those schools and there was no sign of a place coming up in those schools. Eventually, come the first week, the last week in August, the first week in September, it became apparent that Quiva wasn't getting a place in the school. So we had to think about what we were going to do. We were approached with the, with the um, Department of Possibility of Homeschooling. I work as a midwife and my husband works as an electrical engineer. He works a lot abroad as well as all over Ireland. So Homeschooling definitely wasn't an option for us. So we had to look into the only option we had left, and that was boarding school. It was the last option, but we didn't want Quiva missing out on education. Equally, obviously, with both our jobs, we couldn't stay at home and homeschool her. When I told Quiva that she, I had to tell her that she wasn't getting a place in the local school, and I had to tell her she was going to boarding school, and she was absolutely heartbroken. Um, and I just felt, as a parent, uh, that I had left her down, even though it was nothing I could do, but you know, that was the way it was. The department had offered us up to nine hours home tuition, which again with homeschooling wouldn't have been an option. So we had to bring Quiva to Turles and enroll her in the boarding school or otherwise she would have been at home. Um, the boarding schools in Tipperary were in Kildare. 
they had suggested that Quiva commutes up and down daily. That wouldn't work either. Quiva would be exhausted. So it's been an absolute nightmare. It's been heartbreaking to see Quiva so unhappy. So we just have to try and remain hopeful that she'll get a place in our local school in second year. But having been in contact with all the local schools in the area, um, there is no sign of that happening either. We rung the Department of Education several times. We felt so alone on this journey and wouldn't want any other parents going through it. And that's Caroline Ryan Carpenter speaking there to Sally Ann Barrett. Well, uh, let's uh, talk now to um, uh, someone who perhaps can throw some light on this, Brendan Weld, who's a Fine Gael councillor for the Clane Maynooth Municipal District and chair of the Board of Management of a number of schools in the area, I believe. Brendan, thanks for taking our call. How common is, is this experience for parents in, uh, in, in Kildare and indeed elsewhere? Well, it was very bad earlier on this year when we went through the applications because we had a waiting list in all schools. Now, I have to say it has improved greatly, but I'm still not very happy because there's still a number of schools uh, with quite big waiting lists. And the problem here is that parents are very angry and it's putting huge pressure onto the principals of our schools and and vice principals in having to deal with parents. And then the principals are trying to deal um, with the department, and I did hear I didn't hear all of it. The minister's mm-hmm. interview there uh, today, and she did make promises that we would get modular buildings. Well, I know for a fact that last year, um, this time last year, we were promised a modular building for a certain school um, in the North Kildare area, and we didn't get it in time. And mm-hmm. it's only practically in place now. So will there so, then will will there be families like we've we've just heard like Caroline's and Quiva's situation that that come September will have to travel quite some distance uh, to to find a school place? Well, we are being told, and the the department were in contact with all schools last Friday to tell them to send in their um, numbers, and so. We will know a lot more by uh, this weekend. Just to say that we are—I am hopeful that most people will get a school place um, th- this September because I do find that the Department of Education are a lot more proactive than they were this time last year. But mm-hmm. I can't guarantee that, and the principals in any school can't guarantee that because in some cases there physically isn't the place mm-hmm. to put extra classes. But it's not as though the, and we, the also demand- have, right, we, also, we also have a problem with special needs classes. We have people, and I know in one school there's a waiting list of nine, and people are travelling huge distances to get to, uh, I have one woman from Clane who her, um, the grandmother was driving the child uh, to a special to a school for, where there was availability mm-hmm. of a special needs class. And uh, the daughter didn't drive. The grandmother then got sick and the child had no way of getting to the school. It's just that the numbers here can't be a surprise to anybody. It's, it's known the numbers of children in local primary schools, presumably. So the demand for places at second level is, is very clear. Yes, and has been. And we have been telling the department this. The department also meets regularly with Kildare County Council. And they would know for the planning applications that are in the pipeline there, and they would know from the census figures um, 
what the situation is. And mm-hmm. I, like the, our problem here is the department are too slow in acting because when the depart when we need the school in an area, by the t- from the time you start it to the time you get the school open, it's roughly t- taken ten years. And we are mm-hmm. at the moment getting a new school in Saint Farnham's. Well, we're another four or five years away right. from having um, that school opened. Brendan Weld, Fenegale Councillor for Clane and Maynooth on the News at One today. Oliver Callan was chatting about the huge rise in the increase of cocaine in Ireland and the dangers of the drug. He was joined by Dr Chris Luke, former consultant in emergency medicine. Uh, so uh, cocaine, I mean, we're huge consumers of cocaine in Ireland. Do we know how, how much how much cocaine we're, we're using or to the extent of it? Well, we have only indirect metrics, I suppose, Oliver. I mean, no. we know that there were over 300 tonnes of very pure cocaine uh, seized in, in, throughout the EU uh, you know, the last year or two. We know that two tonnes of cocaine were famously seized uh, last year uh, off the coast uh, of this country. And it is a rule of thumb that only 10% uh, of uh, the actual amount of drug in a, in a country is seized. So you have to work backwards from that. And basically, you know, there's, there are vast amounts of cocaine coming in through our ports and our airports uh, and, of course, uh, secretly into our various coves and, and, and across the border from the the north to the south and back, vice versa. So there, there's an awful lot of it. Is 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 I think is the is the main idea. Yeah. Uh, so cocaine. I mean, people have seen it on film and television. It's it's a white powder. It's, yeah. It's 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 cut up with something else so it's a pure pure cocaine is cut with something else isn't that the idea it's kind of diluted with no no I mean a pure cocaine is just pure cocaine it's, uh, you're, you're thinking I suppose of adulterants uh, adulteration with mm-hmm. uh, you know other drugs everything from dog worming uh, powders through to uh, anaesthetic uh, uh, other anaesthetic agents uh, to paracetamol you, you know chalk you, you name it anything that will resemble a white powder can be put into the white powder and if, if the adulterant also gives you a sort of numb feeling in your tongue uh, or some other kind of buzz it'll be put in to, to bulk up the, uh, the the powder that you're getting as, as a line or, or, or more but I suppose uh, from my point of view the bottom line is that co- coca uh, it comes from the coca leaf uh, on the the slopes of the Andes in S- South America and yeah. it's been used for thousands of years by the by the Indians and it, it's basically um, it, it's a, a, a remarkable uh, agent insofar as when it's when the leaf is chewed or you or you, you make a tea out of it that it confers a sort of tolerance of the pain uh, and the, the lack of oxygen, the discomfort, and often the hunger that is perennial in, in those parts of, of the world where, you know, it's, it's very hard to grow, grow crops and, and so on. So yeah. it, it was that, that those qualities, uh, also, it also gives an energy to, to people when they, when they chew or drink the, the tea. And it was that quality that the Spaniards uh, identified uh, when they arrived as the conquistadores several hundred years ago, uh, you know, Long story short, uh, about 200 years later, European chemists managed to turn the uh, the cocaine hydrochloride, the key element in the coca leaf, into powder. And that's, of course, when all the, the problem began. It was shipped to Europe in the mid-19th century. It was even blessed by the Pope, uh, really? Marani. Uh, and that, of course, uh, along with Sigmund Freud, that was the, they were the two great drivers of the use of cocaine in high society. We can blame the Pope, for, we can blame the Vatican for something else as well. Uh, so the long and the short of it, you take a, a line of cocaine, it's snorted, what, what happens to the body? 
Well, within uh, about five minutes or so, uh, people get, uh, most people get a sense of being hugely energised, a surge in self-esteem and, and, and confidence and, and a gradual onset of, of really extreme pleasure uh, or euphoria, as Robbie alluded to. And the number one reason that people take cocaine or any other drug, of course, is for the pleasure. Uh, and the effect of one snorted line may last up to 30 minutes, really. 30 minutes. And then how long before you might feel the, 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 the bad effects? Well, it sort of depends on your tolerance or your, your, your habit, how often you've used it. Uh, but, but very often the first unpleasant uh, problem that people experience is a, is a, is a, is a growing sense of paranoia. You know, the classic thing is uh, the user's in a pub or a club or a crowded other crowded place and they start saying, why is that guy over there staring at me? Yeah. Uh, and that can often be amplified by the, the, the really rapid heart rate that, that they can feel in their, in their chest. Uh, the paranoia sometimes will turn to panic, uh, particularly in novices. Uh, and then, of course, cocaine often is associated with other symptoms like chest pain and breathlessness and sweating and headache and, and, and a weird feeling that the skin is crawling with insects. So they also add to the paranoia uh, and the, the, the user can become really, really very distressed. Uh, could someone be just having the good effects of cocaine if they're using it only seldom? I think that's maybe what Robbie's alluding to when people talk about Oh, oh without a fun. doubt. And that's yeah. why, that's, why uh, that's the number one reason why it's so popular because, you know, uh, probably up to 80% of the time in, in occasional users, there isn't anything more than perhaps tiredness or a little bit of paranoia sometimes uh, apart from the exhaustion afterwards. Uh, but in up to 20%, you, you do get... Uh, a, 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 addictiveness, uh, 10 to 20% of repeat users are said to develop a, a dependence or a compulsive pattern of use. Uh, and that means that if they stop taking the cocaine, uh, you know, night after night or week after the week, they, they can develop horrible withdrawal symptoms, uh, which uh, range from mood swings and irritability and cravings for the drugs to nightmares and feelings of uh, absolute exhaustion, which is famously known as the crash. Mm-hmm. They can also get vomiting or convulsions. And, and uh, you know, one of the things we, we don't talk enough about is the, is the very common thoughts of, of suicidality right. uh, in cocaine users. And of course, this is only, you're still talking about if the cocaine is relatively pure. Well, I'm talking about uh, uh, people who are uh, compelled to keep using it. I mean, whether it's uh, it's pure or not, uh, you know, the, whatever amount there is in the lines of cocaine that are being okay. snorted eventually will accumulate. The, the, you get a cumulative effect. And of course, uh, if you keep taking uh, the cocaine, you start getting a lot of blood vessel damage all over the, the body. Uh, most famously, you get um, small blood vessel damage in the nose, which is why people's noses collapse. The, the cartilage uh, wall between the two nostrils uh, breaks down because of, of a lack of oxygen and you get a nose you know holes appearing in the in the cartilage that's common because that's that's the route through which most of the cocaine goes occasionally people will inject or, or smoke that's very unusual in Ireland uh, but you'll you get the same uh, uh, blockage and collapse of small blood vessels all over the body in the heart the brain uh, and, and other organs and, and and that's why you can uh, eventually end up with vascular disease uh, that can can strike when you haven't had any cocaine. So, in other words, uh, behind the cocaine taking, there's uh, all the while there's uh, beneath the surface there's damage to to blood vessels all around the body going on. So, if you're in your twenties, men and women in twenties using cocaine, they're completely unaware, really. If they're doing it once or twice a month, they don't see themselves as a problem or having a problem, but it's happening. Yeah, and I suppose the other vascular thing that people need to know about. I mean, first of all, you get uh, you, you get a collapsed nose. I mean, we've seen many celebrities over the years, TV celebrities uh, with the, with the collapsed hooked nose. 
from the collapsed cocaine. The other, uh, of course, famous vascular complication is uh, erectile dysfunction because obviously, uh, you know, if the blood vessels aren't working, you're not getting you're, you're not getting uh, an, an erection. Um, but I suppose the thing that I worry most about is what we get, what we call is cocaine agitation delirium. People can become uh, you know, uh, uh, abruptly very delirious. I mean, we, we, many people out in, in our towns and cities will have seen the way uh, a cocaine-using friend or acquaintance or somebody opposite them on a, on a din- in a dinner party table can suddenly morph from being a chatty, witty um, uh, friend or, or, or conversation partner into a, a, a sort of a raving lunatic, sweating, shouting incoherently uh, and brushing aside all efforts to to restrain them by, yeah. by friends and security staff and paramedics. And, and, and that is a very difficult thing to, to deal with because very often that's the, the, the preamble to a, a lethal uh, stroke or seizure or even heart attack. Right. You remind me of, I think it was Cathy Burke who's the actor and director who was talking about uh, people she knew hooked on cocaine and she says, no one has ever said you know, your man has become a lovely person since they started taking cocaine. It's it's a personality changer, isn't it? Yeah, and I I mean the the, the paradigm uh, for people of my generation was was Al Pacino in Scarface towards the end, where he has his famous uh, "My little friend is is machine gun." He's got mounds of cocaine uh, on the table, and he's uh, he's screaming at the 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 the, the, the guys who are invading his 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 uh, his villa yeah. uh, to come and get him, and he's completely off his head. He's screaming and roaring and sweating, and that that's the sort of case that we get, you know, uh, exploding out of ambulances or in police cells or, you know, not uncommonly outside the doors of nightclubs. That was Dr Chris Luke on the Oliver Callan Show and Oliver also spoke to Westmead GAA player Luke Lachlan who talked about confronting his addiction. Take us back to your early 20s, Luke, because I presume you, you start out, it's drinking only, is it? And that, that's the start? Yeah, no, I, I, kind of, I started actually with gambling. Um, right. First, you know, because I was playing a lot of sports and... Um, I started working full time and I was working in a factory. Uh, I left school and started an apprenticeship. So I was getting, I would get my wages and I started playing. I remember getting into a casino one time, I was around 16 or 17, and I won big enough at that time and I was just hooked from there. So then I started the online gambling roulette. So like I could get my wages, I think it was on a Thursday back then. And it, like I'd be at the machine, I'd be working at, and I'd be playing roulette or whatever game I was there at the time. And I'd either be up a few thousand or, or I'd have nothing for the week. But, you know, either way, I was happy enough because I was getting to getting to do what I wanted to You're do. You're chasing with, the high. You know? Yeah, chasing, chasing the high. Chasing the high. And then it progressed then alcohol. Um, do you remember uh, the first I, time you tried cocaine or, or where it came from? Yeah, I actually tried cocaine in uh, Mullingar. I went to America when I was 19, but I tried it once or twice in Mullingar. It didn't really... I was obviously high as a kite, but I didn't really... I never really longed for more of it at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was when I went to America then I got a real taste for cocaine and probably um, my addiction kind of heightened as I was able to access more easily yeah. and alcohol uh, alcohol and cocaine because when I was before I went to America I was still only 18 like I kind of had to report to my mother a bit still at that time you know yeah. couldn't just head off you know but when I came back from America I was kind of I was about 21 and I was fully submersed in my addiction at that time so cocaine and alcohol at that time though I was more of a binger still 
it wasn't an everyday thing. It was kind of four days here, maybe get myself together four days here. But as I said, like I'm 28 now, just progressed and got worse. And obviously the problems I had, my own personal issues that I never dealt with from when I was young, they obviously heighten. And, you know, as you get older, things get worse. You know, you start to care about people's opinions more. You have more responsibility. So everything everything gets more severe. So, like, the paranoia gets more severe. You're, you know, you're like, right, if I can just get this high, I'll be okay. Yeah. But you're not thinking like that. That's just nearly a subconscious thing, you know, like, and you're like, oh, I'll go for a few pints, I'll be grand. And, like, every time I went for a few drinks, I, I had the intention of not, you know, going into self-destruct mode. But, like, I always ended up, with a bag or a couple of bags or it always ended up for a few days with me you know there was no I couldn't just go home for some reason it's one of the things just, it always went too far you know it could keep the party going and you're obviously not yeah. th- doing this on your own it would obviously have been on, on a wider friends group locally yeah. as well so it, it's a, it's a hu- it was easy to get the access to the drugs oh it is yeah it's very easy but like nobody put anything nobody forced me to do anything um, yeah. like some people not everyone is addicted to cocaine or alcohol but you know, I made my own choices. Uh, you know, like a lot of people can, it's easy to blame other people. Now, I know younger people, maybe 17, 18, can be uh, coerced into stuff, but like I was an adult, nobody forced anything to me. Yeah. I I need, I, I needed it, like to be honest, to survive, um, you know, what was going on in my own head, you know. Well, you're in the place where, I suppose Robbie Lawler was telling us his friends are, they're doing it for fun. You You just wanted to escape reality would that be fair to say that's exactly that is exactly it yeah mm-hmm. uh, it sounds crazy when you say that like to escape reality but it's just um, I think addiction well I just you know I, I'm sober now a good while and I kind of look into it something I'm interested in and you know obviously trying to live a better life but I look back on it I think my addiction probably started from when I was young uh, like you know I had a lot of abandonment issues and you know fear rejection trust issues and um that's okay now like i can look back i'm happy with myself now but yeah you know i used other stuff as a child like say playstation to escape reality and without even knowing you know and you obviously you're looking for something stronger as you get older you know and i think that's probably if um people can recognize small bit when their kids or whatever are going through stuff like that maybe to get help for them or to have them try to talk about it even Do you think about the things you missed in your life as a result of the addiction? Um, I definitely feel like I missed out on a lot of opportunities um, because I had the thing like I said I think I mentioned it there like self-destruct I just I like I got back into college a few times because of Gaelic and stuff and like my anxiety wouldn't even let me go in the door you know because I was just so it's just well, like I went up, but I like told everyone where I was from that I was going in every day when I wasn't going in ever, because I was probably so worried that if I failed, and like that's another part. But like I always had a crutch to fall back on. Say, oh, sure, I was drinking. Then you know, if something wrong, I always had a. I was never. I never just. I didn't really have self worth to just go and do something for myself. I always had to have a, a fallback. Like. Sure, I was drinking or I was parking or I was doing this, you know. Yeah. 
when you went public with this last year, Luke Lachlan, uh, for the first time on a big public stage on television, so on, yeah. what, what kind of reaction have you been getting since then from within the GA community in particular? Very good. Um, to be honest, so I think it was 2022, actually. Um, I uh, One of the reporters, Sinead Hussey, she just, yeah. it wasn't really meant to be the way it was, actually. It just kind of happened. She's like, she found out that I was a year sober the day of that Talton Cup final at Westmead and she was like, geez, that's kind of amazing and you could probably help some people. And I, 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 I didn't really think of it too much, but it's just taken off since then and a lot of people reaching out to me like on social media. But I've been getting a great, uh, great response. Um, the odd time, you know, negative. Um, you're always going to have that, like people, you know, with fake profiles. Uh, like leave yeah. nasty comments from time to time. That's another addiction. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, I'm a grown man. Like, I can yeah. see, you know, that's, that's, they have their own problems. People that are doing that. Like, you know, but like, as I said there, social media is great. Like, I'm able to help a lot of people just by, you know, they see that there's another way about, especially because GA is a great community, it's a community based and like, there's a lot of people struggling with the same sort of stuff, maybe not to the same extent, and some people maybe with worse and worse off situations, but, like, if you can pay back what you've, you know, that's where I'm at, like, I'm trying to pay back some of the help that I've got or some of the lessons that I've learned, because, as I said, I'm still only 28, there's a lot of younger people kind of looking up to people like me in my situation, and as long as I can kind of help maybe one person just by yeah. sharing some advice or even listening to them, because, like, I'm not a professional, but, like, but you, but you, we, we hear you speak in confidence and you're in recovery and we wish you well. It'll be three years um, this summer. Yeah, it'll be three Luke. years in July, yeah. And no. like, to be honest, it doesn't Congratulations. even feel like... Yeah, it doesn't even feel like when I think back to some me pre, uh, pre-recovery, pre like that doesn't feel like it was me. It actually feels like it was someone else, which is obviously a great thing. Like, I'm in a great position and, you know, blessed, really, to be honest. Yeah. Westmeath GAA player Luke Lachlan on the Oliver Callan Show this morning. Well, if you're thinking of buying a new telly or confused about the array of smart TVs, new technologies or different iterations of high definition that seem to arrive on the market on a weekly basis, then fear not, Adam Maguire of the RTE Business Desk had the lowdown for us on Today with Colm O'Mungon. Uh, there seems to be constantly new forms of TV tech coming along. Yeah, like it doesn't seem that long ago that people were talking about the difference between HD ready and full HD or whether you should get a, a plasma screen or an LCD. But now there's different types of LED screen. There's ultra HD uh, and various other bells and whistles in there. And, and it's easy to get bogged down because there's all this terminology. They love their acronyms as well. You know, so LED, LCD, OLED, HD, 4K, 8K. Uh, it, it's easy to get lost in all of that. Okay. OMG. Uh, you're going to say so. You're going to buy a, a TV today, if if you were. What is the salesperson going to be trying to sell? to the customer? Well, there are two trends really at the moment and they actually kind of almost seem to contradict each other. It's for TVs to be more vivid uh, and also for them to be more discreet. So manufacturers are always trying to outdo each other on the picture quality uh, and making sure it's as eye-catching as possible. And part of that is, is simply making it brighter, making the colours more vivid. Uh, and it's also making sure that the picture holds up in, in, in real world conditions. So, you know, if there's light streaming in the window, you can still see the screen. If, if it's a well-lit room or dimly lit room, you can still see it well. 
Uh, but making the picture quality better is also about making it darker because you'll notice if you watch something that's set at night time, the, the, the night, the very dark bits are actually only really dark grey or maybe dark blue. That's because the, the lights behind the picture that actually make it visible don't switch off completely. So they can never be completely black and that means you don't get that full contrast that you have. Uh, one of the ways that they're trying to solve this are, are what we're going to hear more and more about OLEDs or mini LEDs. These are smaller lights that are behind the, the screen that are better at, at, at adapting. Uh, they are more expensive though. So if you're looking at an OLED TV or a mini LED TV, you're going to be spending more money on that. Okay, they're the, they're the letter acronyms, but you also <laughs> mentioned 4K and 8K. What's, what are they and what's the difference? Yeah, so, so people will probably be familiar with HD or high definition that the switch over from SD to HD was, it was a huge thing a decade or so ago. But regular old HD became very passe in the TV world very, very quickly and they started talking about 4K which or, or Ultra HD is another term for 4K. So 4K and Ultra HD, same thing? Pretty much, yeah. It's kind of a branding exercise. Really. Essentially, it's four times the picture quality of HD and you can guess then that 8K is eight times the picture quality. Now, the, the reality is that the vast, vast majority of what you'll watch on your TV is going to be regular HD, which is still very, very good quality. That's what most of the main uh, broadcast channels are, are, are in. It's the standard kind of definition that streamers would use as well. You can subscribe to some channels that are, are broadcast in Ultra HD, some sports channels, nature documentaries, that kind of thing. Uh, Netflix also offers a 4K option, but you have to pay for the premium package. You'll mm. also want to make sure you have a good broadband connection because the size of the file is going to be massive if you're watching everything in 4K getting downloaded. Uh, uh, to your to your TV. As for 8K, you're really going to struggle to find any content in in 8K. Uh, that may be different in a couple of years' time, but for now, you're not going to really see any benefit if you buy an 8K TV, and you will pay for it. The cheapest 8K TV I saw in Irish shops was about two grand. They go all the way up to about seven grand as well. So, so you can blow two grand on an 8K TV, and there's no 8K and, content uh, to well, go on. You, you, well, you have to really go looking for okay. it, you, you, and you'll even struggle to find 4K content. But but yeah, definitely 8K content is going to be hard all to right, find. See so laser discs for. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the trend towards making TVs more discreet. Is this sort of Scandinavian design feature or what does what does uh, discreet yeah, mean? It's kind of partly, I suppose part of it is about how you do it yourself. But like the reality is now we we, we point our furniture at the TV. It's the centrepiece of, of the living room. But it's not the nicest look, looking appliance, especially when, when it's switched off. But a good example of trying to deal with that is the Samsung frame, which is a TV that kind of mimics a picture on a wall when it's not in use. So it does that by being incredibly thin. So you can hang it flat on a wall like you would a picture frame. You can put a picture bezel uh, frame bezel around it uh, and the screen also is matte so it doesn't have that shine that you get with a TV screen and all of those things together along with a thing called art mode means when you switch it off a painting type picture comes up in it and it just looks like it's a, a very convincingly a picture just hanging on your wall uh, which is a nice way of hiding the TV basically. Sounds perfect. Is there, <laughs> is there a catch? Is I think, I the think there, there are loads of catches. For a start it's going to cost a lot more than your standard TV. It's come down in price but it still I think starts at about a grand uh, which is a lot more in terms of the features you get compared to another TV. Uh, you also have to pay extra if you want different frames around it. It comes with a black standard one but if you want a nice gold frame or silver you pay more. You also pay if you want different pieces of art on the screen beyond the 20 or so that are preset on it. But, but beyond that there's actually some more practical problems because it has to be a totally flat surface that it hangs on. So if you're one of the people who is smart enough to put your power socket behind the TV so that it's kind of hidden away and it hides the cables, 
you'll have to get rid of that because it has to sit flush. You can't have the plug behind it. Oh, right. In fact, there's only one wire coming out of it goes to a box that you have to connect somewhere else. Um, you also, because it's flat in the wall, you can't angle it. So depending on the shape of your room or where you want a TV, you might not get a good viewing angle. And if you want to hang it, say, high up over the fireplace like you might a real painting, that's not a very good viewing angle. If you're sitting on the couch, you should have it kind of at eye level rather than having to crane your neck up. So all of those things together, I think, mean that it, it, it probably doesn't work very well. And I'm going to really stick the boot in as well because the idea of having it looking like a picture when it's off is nice <laughs> right. but it's using energy when it's doing that so uh, so yeah it's, it's not very energy right. efficient We have about 30 seconds left so give us smart TVs there Yeah so this is another feature one of those premium things that's now become uh, fairly uh, basic so this is where you might have a Wi-Fi connection on your TV you can connect your apps like Netflix, Disney the RT player uh, it essentially means you could do without a cable or a satellite connection which is actually worrying some of the providers so uh, Sky for example has brought out its own smart TV that you don't need a, a satellite connection for. Uh, you could connect your phones to it and so on and put you know your own videos up in it as well. Uh, there are kind of downsides to this though as well. For example, Samsung tried to put ads on their smart TVs so you'd be looking at the program guide, an ad would pop up on the bottom or you might have Alexa or Google Assistant built in which might be something people like but it could also be something they're not too keen on having their TVs listening to them as well. So you can disable the features usually if you, if you want but you need to actually go looking for them. RTE's Adam Maguire on Today with Colm O'Mungan. question I never thought I'd be asking but what do you do if you find a scorpion in your bedroom? Well Gavin Jennings had this story on Morning Ireland. What do you do if you find a scorpion in your bedroom in County Wicklow? That's the question Lorraine Dempsey faced two weeks ago not long after she came home from a holiday in Kenya. Now if you're near Kilmacano, relax, Kenny the scorpion is now in a zoo in Kilkenny and we'll hear from there shortly but first to Lorraine and the discovery of her stowaway she's been telling all to our reporter Ethna Dodd. I Google scorpions from Kenya and the first um, thing that pops up is this um, death stalker, a Kenyan death stalker, which are highly venomous, can prove fatal for children and older people. So I said, right, Kenny, the Kenyan death stalker, here we go. We were trying to make light of it despite being quite anxious about looking for this thing. Thankfully, it turns out that it's a lesser venomous Fisher's fat-tail scorpion, apparently. I lifted up my laundry basket next to my bed and discovered the scorpion looking up at me. And for the first couple of seconds, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. But then I realised I had just come back from Kenya 12 days before. So my brain wasn't playing tricks on me and it was indeed a scorpion. Um, Unfortunately, it scuttled off. So I then spent the next hour and a half pacing around the doorway of my room, ringing different people in the hope of uh, figuring out what to do when you find a scorpion in your bedroom in Ireland. It was a bit surreal, really. But at the same time, it was also a very hazardous situation. So I got the dogs out of the house. Um, I have an eight-year-old in the house. I got her out of the house and she went to stay in the neighbours. I taped the bottom of the door um, until later in the afternoon when kind of my friends arrived and we put a plan in place on how to go scorpion hunting. We set about a plan on how to go through my bedroom um, kind of bit by bit. And the six of us went into the room and many joking aside, we basically had to take every single item of clothing and shoes and files and everything out of my room piece by piece and make sure that they were all uh, shook out. 
and then that we cleared the room. So after about an hour and a half, having taken everything up off the floor, taken apart my bed and checked the mattress and taken that out of the room. And eventually we did find the scorpion um, under the bed, kind of, I suppose, stunned once the light hit it. Um, and then we just dropped a plastic box over the top of it and were able to secure it. We still went through the rest of my room and took everything out just to make sure that um, there wasn't two. So, uh, you know, I'm a bit more at ease now, given that it's not the highly venomous death stalker. So I did sleep in my room that night and uh, it wasn't with one eye open. She slept She slept in the same room that night. My goodness. That's Lorraine Dempsey speaking to Ethna Dodd. James Hennessy is with us. He's director of the National Reptile Zoo in Kilkenny. Morning, James. Good morning. Tell us how the scorpion got from Lorraine to you in Kilkenny. Uh, well, Lorraine recalled us um, just after she had seen the scorpion and it scuttled away, uh, looking for advice on what to do. Um, so at that point, she she didn't know where it was, so she said she it had gone kind of under the bed. So she kind of called us and uh, asked kind of what with, with advice for what to do. So rather than us going down and ripping her house apart on her, she kind of obviously would know her house better. So we told her if she'd secured it, we can kind of get it off her. So in fairness to her, like to be able to catch it herself, and then she brought it directly to us down to Kilkenny. Does this does this happen often? Creatures arriving uh, more, here in people's bags. <laughs> more, more than you'd think. Really? Um, it does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not unusual. It's not common, but it's not unusual. What what sort um, of what sort of things have arrived here in people's uh, bags? We've had. It, it tends to be mostly geckos, and it, it, we do get quite a few scorpions. Um, we also we would get things like uh, very occasionally some frogs, and sometimes some snakes. Is it dangerous? Not really. Um, generally, they're. They don't tend to make it. Most of the stuff that we see that comes in, it's it's been really badly dehydrated. It's gotten into a bag. It's been thrown about in luggage. You know, it's been up up in the decompressed um, area in the aircraft. You know, and it's it doesn't when it gets to this side, it's in it's more it's very worse for wears and it doesn't tend to kind of make it out the other side. What's it doing now? Uh, the scorpion's doing quite well actually. This guy was he was he was very dehydrated. He was quite uh, wrinkly. So we've got him back into the kind of a, a habitat that he should be living in, and he's he's doing really. Or he or she, possibly she actually is is doing really well. It's a, it's a. We fed it last night, now, so we're hopefully going to check this morning to see how she taken the food we gave her. If you've just come back from a far flung country and you haven't unpacked your bag yet, what do you do if you find something? You do, yeah. Depending on what it is, um, and depending on your your comfort level, ideally, if you don't know. Um, check with somebody who does know because uh, misidentification is a big problem you know you can get people who will look at something and they'll make the assumption that it is one type of animal and it may be something else you know as as, um, as Lorraine mentioned like there are dead stalkers in that area which are medically significant you know this species wasn't but she was smart enough to you know to, to assume the worst and, and, and take some cautious and then call you yeah when, when checking for an animal and then call, and call us yeah or yeah depending on the type of animal it is yep James Hennessy, director of the National Reptile Zoo in Kilkenny on Morning Ireland.
Colin Mungo and was in for Claire Byrne today and he was talking about the new task force and specialist unit set up by the Minister for Health to tackle spinal surgery waiting lists for children. Brian O'Connell, who has reported on this issue for many years, had the story. Morning to you. Morning, Colin. Uh, the issue came to the fore last year. Just remind us what the particular issue was there. Yes, well, paediatric orthopaedic uh, waiting lists have been building for many years and they reached something of a crisis point last year when, as, as you said, a review into elements of paediatric orthopaedic surgical services at CHI Temple Street was set up for following several serious spinal surgical incidents. Uh, the review has been conducted by an external consultant in orthopaedics. Uh, Paul Cullen in the Irish Times is reporting this morning this review is now to be extended after additional cases of concern were identified and they will now be included. We know one surgeon is not performing surgeries at the moment. Some of the more complex surgeries related to spinal cases have been paused while this review is ongoing. All of this obviously is having a very significant impact on waiting times and on the health outcomes of some of our most vulnerable children. And there had also been calls by parents and advocacy groups for a special task force to examine these issues. It would appear they've been listened to, does it? Absolutely. Advocate groups have been calling for a specialist task force to deal with this issue, to deal with the waiting lists. Hundreds of children are currently waiting on surgery. I just had a look at the latest stats, for example, over 150 uh, children waiting for spinal fusions at the moment at the end of January, over 120 waiting on different types of spinal procedures as well. And there are others. So it would seem now these calls have been listened to. The Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, has confirmed several actions. One, CHI has been asked to establish a dedicated paediatric spinal surgery unit this will have a full time project lead and it's going to work on the issue of waiting lists. Second issue is that the HSE has been asked to set up a task force on spinal surgery waiting lists for children. The aim is to include representation from patient advocates. They've been calling for that for a long time and there has been something of a a cautious welcome I would call a column to this announcement this morning by some of the groups I've been talking to. Una Keitley is co-lead of the Spina Bifida Hydrocephalus Paediatric Advocacy group. She gave me her reaction a little while ago. This morning we welcome that uh, Minister Stephen Donnelly after a long five months has finally listened to the advocacy group's ass and understood that a task force is required to manage this crisis. We've authored our vision of the task force utilising our lived experience um, and that is healthcare professionals who have children within the service and we welcome that this task force hopefully will be independent of CHI and the HSE. It is good news, but I wonder why it's taken five months, five months that our children do not have to get to this point. Separate to this, uh, we understand the independent expert review has been delayed now. And the reason for this is that it's been extended to look at more cases. Um, So there was information last week given to parents that the child's chart was randomly selected um, to be reviewed. Um, It seems that possibly that's different to what the information has been in the in the papers this morning that there's a further cases it looks like the review is going in one direction and just more information needs to come to parents and advocates on what is actually happening i suppose the focus here as well should remain on the fact that many children are still waiting for essential treatment yeah there's been many reviews over the last couple of months and i'm sure this uh, situation will continue for quite a long time but you have to remember in this that the parents primary thought in the front of their mind is getting their child access to care and that is number one for them. Any information can be looked at and will be looked at over time but they need their child to be able to access care in a timely manner.
this is a catastrophe, an absolute crisis. We've been told repeatedly by successive ministers and each and every one of them has said they will do above and beyond, move mountains for our children. And that has not happened. And now this task force that we have asked for is finally coming and we need to be front and centre driving this along in collaboration with the minister um, to try and once and for all get over this hump of children waiting and suffering in pain. And that was advocate Una Kitely giving her reaction. You got some clarity around who will be contacted now as part of this review, Brian. Uh, Una mentioned some parents were contacted at random. Now, what the Department of Health have told me is that additional cases have been identified as part of an internal clinical assurance process as potential cases of concern. These families have been informed. Some cases as well have been selected at random. So that's what Una was referring to there as well. These families have been informed. All of these cases relate to the practice the department tells me of the consultant whose work is being reviewed. Advocacy groups were advised that the report would now be delayed, uh, that uh, communication was sent on the 2nd of February. Okay, and in the meantime, presumably it'll take some time for all of those actions to have an impact. Do we know what's happening with surgeries at the moment? Well, we know there was a targeted four-month waiting time and in most cases that isn't being met. Uh, A factor here is that more and more patients are being added to the waiting list all the time. So if you look, for example, in 2022, there was a 30% increase in additions to the spinal fusion surgery list. Uh, That rose to 42% in uh, last year. So quite significant additions to that waiting list at the moment. At the end of December um, last year, 78 patients were waiting over four months. That's a 30 percent reduction at the end of 2022 but there are significant numbers waiting already and as we know of course one surgeon isn't performing surgeries currently uh, these would be highly specialised medics and they're not easily replaced. I had asked CHI were there any plans to put in place uh, a temporary uh, replacement for example they said a new spinal consultant has been identified and um, he will be or she will be seeing patients um, in clinics going forward they say spinal surgeries for patients will take place in CHI Crumlin and Temple Street and um, they say the patients of one clinician have been transferred or are in the process of being transferred um, to orthopaedic consultants in CHI. There is some movement as well on accessing treatment abroad. This was being flagged as a possible solution for some families. Most likely this could take place in London for example but it doesn't work for all families Column, and there are question marks as well around post-operative care. Okay, you also got the reaction of one family who've been waiting for far too many years for treatment. Yes, and bearing in mind families are really just coming to terms with the announcement by the Minister for Health uh, around new measures and they haven't fully drilled down into detail yet. Um, But a little while ago I spoke with Megan Murphy. Her son Paddy is 14. He's a full-time wheelchair user. He has spina bifida. He's also got scoliosis and he or she began by telling me how long her son Paddy has been waiting for spinal surgery. He's been waiting multiple years now, probably moving on to five years, and the curve is progressing all the time. And obviously it's having a major impact on his life, I would imagine. Paddy's in mainstream school. He's very active. He plays wheelchair basketball and everything. His curve is like, is is the shape of a a question mark. It digs over into his shoulder blade. So as that curve is is increasing all the time, it's, it's causing a lot of pain in his upper back, his shoulder blades, his arms, his neck. And it's also majorly affecting his lungs on the inside. Um, He's lost quite a bit of lung function already. He has not had any proper reviews in a while, so we're not sure where it's at. You haven't been given a date for surgery? We've been given no dates for surgery, no. 
So now news today that a task force is to be set up and the external review is to be extended to look at more cases. How do you feel about that? I I'm trying to be hopeful. Um, I'm not really, but I, I'm I, I won't hold my breath, but I, I'm going to try and go with it and we'll see what happens. But I know from over the last few months, we've already had promises. My son was supposed to be seen in Portland in London um, for a second opinion with possible surgery. And I was told that will be done by January, the beginning of February. Um, he was also supposed to have a follow up X-ray. So I do hear a lot of promises and things happening from people who are high up in these areas and nothing follows through with them. So like I said, I'm trying to be hopeful, but I just don't know, Brian. And does it worry you then when you hear that the external review is to be extended? It doesn't surprise me, to be quite honest. I'm waiting to hear more information on that and on what that includes and on what cohort of children that includes, because, yeah, I'm waiting to see what that's about. Having covered this issue for a number of years, Megan, it seems always that we're reacting uh, to crises as opposed to there being a proactive plan in place. Oh, Brian, as a parent, I, I'm 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 honestly sick and worn out of, of having to come on radio, of having to be on television, newspapers. We're doing it for years. And every time we're doing it, it's because things are at such a heightened crisis that we, we are having to fight it. It's never for anything positive, unfortunately. Um, it shouldn't be the way that the country is, but it's the only way our voices are heard is for for people to actually listen to us through the media. I'm sick of it. I don't want to do it. Keep doing it. But I don't know what else to do. And that was Megan Murphy, mother of 14-year-old Paddy there. You've also got uh, some additional detail from the Department of Health, Brian, in the past hour about these new measures they've announced. Yeah, just uh, very briefly on the dedicated spinal unit, David Moore, a consulted surgeon, has now been appointed to head up this newly established unit, the department has told me. And then just finally on this task force, which uh, advocates had been calling for for some time, the model they're going to base this on will be one, uh, the one that was used for delivering improvements to the survival check screening programme. The Minister has written to advocacy groups seeking uh, their input and I can tell you they will have a pretty strong input into that uh, from talking to them this morning. Brian O'Connell on Today with Colm O'Mungon. How are we going to reduce emissions at our airports even when we expand flying? Well, Dublin Airport Authority launched its 20-point plan to do just this today. The plan is for Dublin and Cork airports as they work towards net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Andrea Carroll, DAA Group Head of Sustainability, spoke to Carol Coleman on Morning Ireland. Andrea, amongst the measures that you're announcing today is making Dublin Airport diesel-free, ensuring that the light vehicle fleet at the airport is 100% electric by the end of this year. Tell us more. Great. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction and for having me on. The announcements that we have today are immediate actions that we're taking to address some of the environmental and sustainability issues that we have at the airports that we um, that we manage. So just to, to make it really clear, this is not a 20-point plan to achieve net zero. This is immediate actions that we're taking now. So things like diesel-free Dublin, where we're moving all of our diesel fleet that can't be electrified to HVO because HVO, is which is hydro-treated hydro vegetable oil, um, and a great alternative to diesel are things that we can do now to have immediate reduction of our emissions. Now, the goal, of course, is net zero by 2050. So what is your goal for 2030? What percentage are you on track to achieve by 2030 for Dublin and Cork airports? 
Yeah, so we are complying with the public sector requirements under the Climate Action Plan. So a 51% reduction in energy use and a 50% um, <clears throat> increase in energy efficiency, which is the reduction of actual energy used on site, which we're tracking well ahead of the second one right now. And we're putting in these kind of measures to address what's called scope one and two emissions. So these are things that are directly under our control and they'll contribute to the government's targets. So we're working very closely with other public sector bodies and with the government on their climate action plan to address these. One of the things you're talking about is a solar farm at Cork Airport, then apron lighting, LED technology for that, shared bike scheme, all of these good things. But Dublin Airport is looking to increase its passenger capacity from 32 million to 40 million. How can you bring in 8 million extra passengers, keep them all moving, travelling, flying and still achieve sustainability with these smaller things, as you say? Look, I think this is the goal, but what, what you set up there, the way you set up the question is the, these two things two things are not directly comparable. The launch that we have today is of the immediate actions that were taken to address the scope one and two emissions. But yet the they're all part issue, of achieving that eventual goal. Absolutely. They're all part of it, but they're not the only answer. So we do have a lot of other plans in terms of working with our partners on scope three emissions, which is the real challenge for aviation to address things like growth capacity. So I'm not saying that they're directly in line to what we're announcing today isn't to address the expansion issue. It's to demonstrate the kind of actions that we're taking on the ground to make a change right now. You must have some calculations done, however, for the impact of an additional 8 million passengers that the airport is seeking. What would be the extra emissions arising out of those 8 million passengers if you were to be given permission to have 8 million, say, in the next year or two? Sure. I know that question has come up a lot in the last while. Look, my role as head of sustainability is to understand this kind of modelling. But what I would say is that it's not as easy as comparing a 25% increase versus a 25% creates a 25% increase in carbon emissions. There's lots of different factors that are at play. So the types of airline that come in, the types of um, aircraft that come in. Um, the level of passengers that are on those flights, that, that kind of thing. There's a lot of different factors that we are taking into account But here. don't you all so also have, announced... have to have the figures, uh, Andrea Carroll? You must have some yeah, figures for how much this, the emissions would increase I if you were to you have the figure, 8 million. I can't give you one figure that's going to satisfy you this morning. What I can say is that there's modelling on this issue, but there's also a role that the airlines have to play in terms of the way that they're going to participate in this. So we'll continue to address this as part of our net zero plan. We do have a carbon reduction strategy for Dublin Airport, which is available on our website. It doesn't answer this specific question, but there is modelling and there are multiple different factors that are going to be at play at this. We also have announced environmental incentives to look at the types of air, aircraft that will be incentivized to come into Dublin Airport. All of that plays into this. It's not a direct correlation in terms of increase. That's Andrea Carroll, DAA Group Head of Sustainability on Morning Ireland. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. But as always, if you'd like to listen back to any of your favourite shows on Radio 1, you can do that on the RTE radio app or on rte.ie slash radio. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care.